0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. Today, I'm talking to Christopher Church, who's the author of Paradise Destroyed, Catastrophe and Citizenship in the French Caribbean, published very recently by University of Nebraska Press. This book centers on the catastrophes that hit the islands of Guadeloupe and Martinique in the late 19th century, including fires, hurricanes, and of course, the volcanic eruption of Mount Pele in 1902. It looks at the relationship of those disasters to changing notions of citizenship and race, as well as the status of the colonies themselves. Church takes an innovative approach using some digital humanities tools, but also relying on more traditional archival practices. It's an important book that adds to the growing field of environmental studies of the Caribbean. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Chris, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's
1: a pleasure to be here.
0: You've written this really cool book. Um, about catastrophes and citizenship in the French Caribbean. But you also um, used a lot of new kinds of tools, in particular digital history tools. So just, just to start out, can you talk a little bit about how you arrived where you are today? How did you get to be a historian? And how did you get to be a historian with this particular interest in, in uh, digital history?
1: Well, it's uh, well, we have to go way back, um, but, <laughs> but I, I had actually entered um, my undergraduate as a computer science major, um, and it was the fantastic courses of Cheryl Crowan at the University of Florida that uh, turned me from a computer science major into a history major, specifically a French history major. So that's how I began to be interested uh, in history. And then she was also a cultural historian, so. Uh, I got very interested in in how cultural productions and um, and how they're related to the state and and the kind of confluence of of politics and culture uh, and then the disaster side of things came in uh, as I entered graduate school I grew up in Florida and I knew I wanted to study French colonial spaces uh, and I figured the the Caribbean would be a logical place to look into considering where I grew up um, and then that's also where the disasters come from. Having lived through Hurricane Andrew and uh, being at university during the kind of 2004 2005 um, hurricane seasons that were so um, so disastrous.
0: Yeah, I I was thinking that it's a topic that seems really timely, uh, but I was imagining that it wasn't as timely when you started the research, but or perhaps it was just it it, it just wasn't as much in the public eye. But certainly, Caribbean. Uh, Disasters and catastrophes have have been a lot in the news lately, so it's a very timely kind of project.
1: Yeah, and this is this has come this semester. I'm teaching my disasters course, um, and this has come up frequently because the number of parallels between Puerto Rico and what's happened after Maria um, and what happened in the French Caribbean and Martinique and Guadeloupe in the late 19th century uh, it resonates so strongly uh, because both occupied this position as being these kind of quasi colonies or neo colonies where the population are citizens of of the metropole though many in the metropole don't realize this and then the state is is reluctant to to provide aid in in a meaningful way and actually uses the colonial relationship and the distance of the colony as as legitimation for not providing this aid so yeah in my course we've we've we're just now wrapping it up at the end of the semester but um it it's it's sad that the that it resonates so strongly um but it's you know the history has given us a very good framework in the class to talk through current events and so hopefully my book does the same helps give the framework for understanding what's going on not just in France and its colonies but in the u s and Uh, and its territories.
0: Yeah I was actually thinking about that as I read the book and in particular and I want to talk about this a little bit later when we get to that that part of the book but um, in particular I was really interested in this question that you ask um, about who gives what kind of aid not just government aid but but sort of citizens right and citizens kind of responding to this call for help and you really saw a lot of that even sort of I guess going back to the earthquake in Haiti and uh, over and over again with Puerto Rico and things like that. So I did. I did also find those resonances. It was really fascinating. Um, But I want to. I actually want to talk a little bit about um, the the beginning part and another one of the framing mechanisms that you have, which is about race. Um, And you open with some quite surprising material about the supposed salubrity of mixed race people, and you have uncovered some texts. Um, that really talk about how much better these people are suited to uh, being in the colonies, and how they are kind of the ideal um, uh, people to rule the colonies, et cetera. And to, were, were you surprised to find those kinds of texts? Were you looking for them? Did you? How did you come across them?
1: Honestly, I was shocked. Um, so much of the the literature, and in so many of the other colonial contexts, um, you see this this distancing from from colonial mixture. Um, but as I dug into it, I mean, it, it logically makes sense given the longer history of uh, racial intermarriage in the Americas, specifically in the French context. Um, but, I, you know, I, 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 I want to make sure that it's clear that what's going on is is still uh, intensely negative, right? They're – what's happening is they're looking out of the polit- – because of politi- political exigencies, Um, looking for a population that they can ally with in the Caribbean. And this is something that um, has deep roots in the Caribbean, even during the Haitian revolution, for instance, where French Republicans were looking to the mixed race population um, during the revolution as people who could keep out, keep out the Spanish. Um, And so it's, it's, uh, I hesitate to say uh, kind of a marriage of convenience, I guess a relationship of convenience um, but it's one that you know that, that the idea of the mixed race populations in the Caribbean being these kind of political leaders um, in the 1890s, which is what the the main period of the book of what the book looks at, is um, really the the mixed race people come to the political fore, particularly uh, in Martinique, less so and Guadeloupe, uh, where there's a very strong um, uh, black socialist movement at the end of the this century, but very much so in Martinique. Um, and it, it really kind of challenges some of the narratives, but at the same time, you know, the exception, right, proves the rule that uh, that these are intensely racist regimes. Um, but it also helps to explain why other scholars like Véronique Alenon have, have shown that, um, you know, the, the French look to the Caribbean for this population of um, of people who would make great colonial bureaucrats elsewhere in the empire. Um, and it comes from this kind of intensely racist ideology, but one that's applied in a, in a very peculiar and different way uh, in this context.
0: Yeah, that's, um, I found that really, really interesting. So um, the, the second chapter opens with the descriptions of the fires of 1890. And these descriptions are so rich and so detailed um, they're really wonderful, and I was um, fascinated also just to think about the ways you talk about the dilemmas of wood versus stone building, and the, the kind of the geek in me <laughs> really, really enjoyed sort of how deep you went into that and thinking about it, it makes so much sense, right? The 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 problem of fires versus hurricanes. Um, what what do you build that will last? Is there anything that will last through both of those? And that that kind of constant calculus that people were engaged in. I thought that that was. Really nice, but in this chapter, actually, I want to talk about the two two of the um, digital humanities tools that are really apparent. Um, in one, you talk about the um, you look at the kind of language that's most associated with right or left wing political positions, and in the in the other one, you follow the money for donations, and this is what I was uh, alluding to a little bit earlier. So you you track you find a way to track not just where um not just how much money but where exactly it comes from um and then you make an argument um that's related to sort of citizenship in that in that regard and so i was wondering if you can walk us through how you did that how how that occurred to you and what wh- what's the argument that you're making about the relationship between aid and and citizenship
1: um so to begin with kind of why why the digital humanities in this context in particular in this chapter uh, it really arose from the questions that I had, and then the the sources in a kind of traditional close reading fashion not being able to answer that question um so in the case of the more textual analysis text mining, I was really interested in kind of looking at these bird's eye view uh views of how is it that people are actually processing this disaster or at least how is the press can um uh, kind of conveying or, or or picturing this disaster for its readership uh, and then in the case of following the money I uh, really came down to the archival experience I, I was in the archives and I found you know one box and then I found two boxes three boxes um, of of these donations and they were they were handwritten donation sheets uh, where people would write down who they were how much they gave and they'd be basically collected at, in municipalities. Uh, across across the nation, across the French, um, uh, in the countryside and in, in the urban spaces. And literally, there was nothing I could do with them um, intellectually at, in their normal form. I mean, really, the only thing I could say about them is uh, so many people donated that it was enough to fill up you know, several dossiers across uh, a couple of cartons. Because if you looked at them, they were just these massive stacks of papers that you couldn't really think through or process. And so that's where I turned to, to the digital humanities because my first thought was, well, you know, if, if I need to process these, categorize, organize, uh, I turn to a database. And from there, I was like, okay, now – and I had to actually hand uh, – put these in through the accountant's registers that came along with these documents. Wow. Uh, it was wow. about, <laughs> about 6,600 donations. It took me um, not quite a year, maybe about eight months uh, to put all these in. And then I was thinking, what am I going to do with them now that they're in? Uh, so as I put them in I categorized them by where they came uh, in the French economic sector did they come from kind of public collections financial institutions educational institutions um, and then I thought well I know I have the locations so I in the database I built a relation that showed uh, of all the locations represented in the in the um, archives and I geo um, coded them for the latitude and longitude. And then what that enabled me to do is actually go, okay, now let's plot these on a map. Let's aggregate by department or by region. Um, let's look at them, not by department or by region, or but just look at all the data points of how much money came from each specific location in France. And there is this moment, right? Where I'm like, okay, I have spent eight months doing this and I have no idea <laughs> if it's going to pay off. Um, I could have just, you know, gone down a rabbit hole for eight months and had nothing to show for it. Um, and then that, that was... As soon as I started plotting them, I, I got excited, right? Because there's these anomalies. First and foremost, I thought one of the the the, the coolest things, you know, I'm, I'm going to geek geek out as well, is that you could clearly see France. I mean, there was enough coverage and enough donations from the whole country that without providing any kind of base map or underlying image, you could see France just from the points on a map of where people donated. And I thought that was that was very mm-hmm. telling. But then the second mm-hmm. part was. Uh, Why did Merte Moselle donate so much money? Why did this uh, department, the kind of leftovers of what was taken in the Franco-Prussian War, a predominantly, you know, kind of Germanic area of France that has no connection whatsoever um, to the Caribbean, why did they donate so much money Um, and why was it that the the areas that had the strongest connection to the Caribbean, so uh, Marseille, Bordeaux, for instance, um, even to a lesser extent, Le Havre, uh, why didn't they donate money? Those are the places you would expect them to donate money because they had such a longstanding financial, uh, even cultural relationship with the Caribbean. Um, and so then I had to, I investigated that through kind of more traditional close reading and scholarship. But the answer for Demoiselle is that precisely the areas that are invested in the Republican project, the ones that have to prove... Hey, we're French too. were really the places that that had, uh, that that this camp, this uh, donation campaign, predominantly because it, it was spread through uh, the, the kind of public and public education um, system, uh, really spoke to them. As opposed to those places that had the strongest connection to the Caribbean financially, which at this time, and I, I make the next chapter really goes into this. We're starting to say, well, maybe it's time to kind of financially divest. From, from the Caribbean if it's going to continue meeting these disasters, and beet sugar is going to take over cane sugar, which was the predominant um, export of the Caribbean. Uh, and so it fits in line with the rest of it, but you know, there was that kind of shock, you know, the shocking moment or surprising moment where you're like, wow, why is that? And this is something that you would never have got, I would have never have gotten to uh, just by, I could have sat there and read every, and I actually in fact did read um, all of the donations as I was entering them, but you don't see the patterns until you have that, uh, the, the kind of computer, the computer crunch the numbers and give you that, that bird's eye view.
0: Yeah. So it was the combination of the, the, the actual sort of visual, visual visualizing, excuse me, of that data that made you think, okay, these are, these people are on the margins, are they trying to make themselves more French? Because that was that was your argument, right? Sort of trying to prove their Frenchness by by contributing and donating to the cause.
1: Yeah, essentially that. Because you know, I knew they were on the margins, and I'm like, but if, being on the margins, why would they resonate so strongly with uh, victims in the Caribbean to where they donated right. uh, about double per capita that even even you know France uh, Paris rather uh, donated. So. You know, Paris, where all of the money is, where all the people are, you would expect to kind of – you know, in, in terms of raw donations, it's true. But in terms of per capita, uh, it really resonated. And then even in terms of coverage, the number of um, townships and, and cities and the like um, up in, in Lorraine uh, was, was remarkable, the amount – just kind of the number of cities who participated in this fundraising campaign.
0: Also works really nicely to decenter the notion of France, right? Move away from from Paris and and into the into the countryside,
1: and to show that there's this investment in in the at least the ideals of republicanism, despite the fact that it fails so frequently in practice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the, the liberty, equality, and fraternity did have a substantial degree of resonance, um, just perhaps not in in the areas that had the strong financial ties to the Caribbean.
0: Right. And and so, as you say, the next chapter moves into those areas with the hurricane of 1891, and you use that as an opportunity to sort of think about the paradox of Martinique's further integration into the market system, even at, while at the same time um, they're keeping them at arm's length with regards to full citizenship, right? So, And it seems like the disaster is a particularly good point of entry into that dynamic how did you how did you get to that point how did you get to sort of finding that particular set of of uh, paradoxes and and ways to explain them
1: well so you know as i was working on on the the fi- um, fires of 1890 i i was really talking about this i at least in that chapter this idea of a language of citizenship right the language of belonging of republicanism the um uh, the kind of ideals that stem from the french revolution and then you get into the 1891 hurricane. And that's where you start reading these documents that kind of dovetail with what I was saying about, say, Bordeaux, uh, where they're explicitly saying, well, look, culturally um, and perhaps linguistically, these areas should be uh, considered parts of France, but economically, and they really start to lean heavily on the economics. And one of the things that that I see in these documents is the kind of coding of, of racist ideology and economic terms that definitely occurs. Um, but then there's also a, a, a distancing of space. Um, and unfortunately, again, this is where it resonates with, with current politics. Um, the chamber of commerce of Bordeaux, for instance, makes this argument that, um, you know, Martinique uh, again, it should be econ- it, perhaps politically or, or culturally considered French, uh, but when you really think about it, it's far removed from from the country. It doesn't have the ability to lean on neighboring departments like you would in France. It doesn't have a diversified economy. Never you mind that Bordeaux is responsible for the fact that it exports a monocrop, but, but it doesn't have a diversified co- economy. So it, 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 it's very vulnerable and perhaps you know it's its own fault. Um, and the resonances between that language that Bordeaux, Bordeaux used, the Chamber of Commerce of Bordeaux used in 1891, uh, is strikingly similar to some of the arguments you've heard about uh, Puerto Rico in, in recent months, about it being surrounded by water, being far removed. Its you know, uh, its economy is incredibly vulnerable. Never you mind that its economy is vulnerable because of a post-colonial relationship. Um, and so in, in that chapter, in the 1891 uh, hurricane, this is where I start developing in the book this idea of a kind of a calculus of disaster, where you know it's eco- it's, it's culturally motivated. There's there's it's laden with uh, racist assumptions, uh, but it's couched in these economic terms that you know, really we should reconsider because of this series of disasters. Um, the the place of the Caribbean in the kind of idea of a greater France, uh, at the same time that politicians in those colonies were. Pushing for complete assimilation, a complete departmentalization of the colony uh, into France proper,
0: and that that debate uh, continues on, right? And it seems like some of these events and moments and and uh, catastrophes serve to to sort of exacerbate the tensions. In particular, for example, um, this idea that you have in 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 the chapter on incendiarism, which I thought was a really nice. Word that ties both um, the fires to civil disorder, and you can see how they both have to do with incendiary (laughs) moments. Um, And I want to talk about the the shared characteristics of that. But those those that the strikes, both the fires and the strikes, sort of seem to fuel tensions between the right and the left in France, so that they are all there. There's everything is refracted against each other, right? can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah.
1: And so uh, one of the the big threads of um, the kind of branch of environmental history that looks at disasters is uh, concerning how – concerns how disasters uh, amplify the problems that existed beforehand. So it doesn't create these tensions between left, right, and center in the colonies or in France. In uh, but what it does is it really – Throws them in, you know, puts them on center stage, throws them into kind of a a stark uh, relief, and and um, encourages us to really think through what's going on both before and after the disaster. And so, what happens at the end, the tail end of the 1890s? You have, um, you know, this horrific drought uh, and a number of fires. And fires have been a perennial problem in the Caribbean for colonial administrators. Um, In fact, the governor of of uh, Guadalupe at the time referred to it as the kind of last resort of the slave, particularly because the disenfranchised, you know, as a, would turn to these weapons of the weak, namely arson, um, to get their point across. And so, so there's this attitude that perhaps this drought, which is causing this. Um, the possibility of these fires, making it so that, uh, as one observer remarked, you know, a, a careless uh, farmer walking by with a match could light the entire uh, field uh, accidentally. Um, it, it makes it so that those are possible, but then there's this strong push by uh, officials to, to contextualize these or to understand these as, as intentional acts. Um, and then you move into the... Um, fire in, uh, Pointe-Pitre, which burns down the vast majority of the city. Uh, and again, is this kind of reevaluation of, you know, is the populace here turning against us? Um, but then you have a hurricane that comes in and the way I describe it is kind of it because of necessity, because there's so much devastation as a result of the hurricane that it kind of quilts those flames. Uh, but there's that, that longer thread of labor unrest in, 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 distrust of the government that ends up flaring up in the neighboring colony of Martinique uh, and that's where we get into the eight, uh, the 1900 uh, strike uh, which gets Im- you know uh, intricately involved in, in metropolitan politics um, and in fact almost topples the government um, the, the coalition government of, of Waldeck Rousseau
0: yeah, um, it, it's really interesting to think about how those um, the ties sort of tighten and loosen and the, and the, the ways it plays into into domestic politics as well. Um, you end the book with this description of the eruption of Mount Pele. You also open it with this description of the eruption of Mount Pele. and I think it's warranted because the descriptions are so dramatic and so devastating. I mean, I knew that there had been a volcanic eruption, but I had no idea, you know, how devastating that actually was. H- how were you able to write about that so vividly? I just I found that just such a such a wonderful piece of writing. It drew me right in.
1: Well, well, thank you, but I can't take total credit because I had source materials that were so vivid. Um, The the descriptions of Mount Pele were striking at the time because it had made such an impact both uh, on the kind of Caribbean islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe and more broadly uh, in the United States, in France, in Germany. Um, I'm actually working on an article now about how this kind of event had such strong ripples that Pele actually erupts again in 1929, uh, for three years. And the memory of what happened in 1902, um, loomed very heavily and, and shaped the kinds of decisions that people made, um, you know, almost 30 years, 27 years later, um, the 29 eruption didn't kill anyone. The 1902 eruption was so stark because it killed almost 30,000 people, um, virtually instantaneously at a time when people were saying, you know, this volcano you know they're expecting kind of a a hawaiian style eruption where the the lava would come out and slowly flow down the mountain and what they got was something more forceful than uh you know more deadly than mount saint helens where it just blasted through the side of the mountain coated the city and, and killed everyone instantaneously um and so they're just just the source material is rife with with these vivid descriptions i mean postcards of of kind of calcified or ossified cadavers and, um, you know, it's just, so I can't take uh total credit for describing it so vividly because, <laughs> because, because the contemporaries did as no, well. No, I
0: think you should take credit. <laughs> okay.
1: uh,
0: um, so towards the end of the book, there's another uh, use of digital tools where you do this engram search to show the relationship of, um, natural disasters in Martinique and to the, and the, relationship to that to the idea of citizenship um how does how does that work and how did you how did you get to that particular um method
1: so it stems out of the the earlier work that i was doing with the the newspapers um and i was really interested in again the, the question first which is you know in all of the source materials when these disasters happen in the archive i keep seeing this refrain of um, no, uh in Martinique and Guadeloupe. So our, our, our co-citizens are, are are kind of comrades or such. And so I wanted to know, you know, is there a correlation between that sort of language in the disasters or is this kind of a language that is just commonplacely applied, you know, in a commonplace fashion applied to the Caribbean? And so I turned to the the, the French Google Books corpus to look at those differences of what happens when we know these major disasters occur with that sort of language, that engram of um, you know our concitoyen of Martinique or um, the victims of Martinique, um, and how does that relate? And you see these kind of coinciding spikes, right? Of here's the disaster, here's a spike in victimhood, and here's a smaller spike in in the idea of them being our um, our concitoyens. So there's this. In, in some sense, perverse relationship between highlighting this the shared citizenship of the these these citizens in a colony, uh, because they were proper citizens of France and and the metropole, and I think this is again one of those dynamics that we see today that it's not shocking, so to speak, to to see it in the, in the past, where um, you know when when Maria hits hit, hits uh, Puerto Rico, that there is this highlighting of of the citizenship in the very moment where people are saying you know you know you see the ignorance that people don't realize when the disaster hits uh, one of these colonies that the people living there are citizens and then through the disaster relief and the media attention that it gets acknowledge that they're that they are in fact um citizens of the same same nation
0: but at the same time you also talk about a declining amount of aid right and the way that that eventually leads to the adoption of department status in 1946. So how does that work?
1: So again, this is the, those two, and this is a prevailing theme in the book that there's these two countervailing forces, the the language of citizenship, and then that calculus of disaster. And in that, in this instance with the declining aid, you have that, the, you know, ultimately it comes down to economics and what's seen as economic progress. And so you see this declining aid, um, in terms of, if you adjust it for inflation, from you know uh, from these series of disasters in the 1890s, capped off by the 1902 eruption of Mount Pele, um, and there's this this uh, they, they, the, the 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 kind of French business elite no longer wants to, and, and, and their representatives in, in the government no longer want to inject capital into these islands, precisely because, like I had mentioned earlier, beet sugar is taking over. Um, and and the sorts of economic output of the Caribbean is no longer seen as important uh, to the French state, um, and so yeah, that's that that countervailing force. And I try to make sure that there's always this balance because I don't want to put too much weight on on the you know what you could potentially spin as a positive, right? This acknowledgement of of shared citizenship, because it's always balanced by this more you know ca- this calculus of um, Economic utility,
0: and how does that lead into the adoption of department status in in forty six?
1: So I would say that the the uh, economic side of thing is things is what's pushing against uh, departmentalization, and in fact, uh, there's two kind of main big forces that are pushing against departmentalization: that and the, the economics, and then also the um, the white planter elite is pushing for more autonomy over this period. Those who are really pushing for integration are those mixed-race politicians, that kind of middle class that develops, um, particularly in the late 1880s and 1890s, um, who are saying that culturally, we need to become part of France. Politically, we are quasi-part of the Fran- France, when we are essentially, as France Fanon described them as a quasi-department or quasi-metropolitans. And so there's this strong cultural push that I say I would say is delayed by the economic considerations until after the Second World War. Um, and so you, it's kind of developed this dynamic that persists for several centuries. Um, and I end the book with looking at um, the first uh, first world War precisely because it's this moment where uh, the the French Antillians are really showing their, complete integration into the ideals of France. They're fighting for France and they witness the kind of catastrophe that's the First World War and the barbarism there. And so it, again, there's this like strong kind of cultural and social push um, by the the Caribbean or the Antillians themselves to become part of France.
0: So what you're proposing is a really very different kind of narrative than the one that leads to, kind of nationalist push for independence and decolonization like we see in other parts of the Caribbean during this period, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean it's kind of the central quandary of of Martinique and Guadeloupe is why would someone like Aime Césaire, a communist, uh precisely at the time when all of the other French colonies are pushing for independence and autonomy, um push for for departmentalization like he did and i think that to answer that you have to lean heavily on the kind of cultural history side of things and the disasters play a, a precise role in this but there's a much longer trajectory i mean the the colonies in martinique guadeloupe had be, been part of france in 1635 um, longer than um, nice longer than savoy longer than corsica uh, other places that are kind of more traditionally considered you know the, the, the mainland France. And so there's that, but then there's also this, the, the specter of Haiti, which is a big part of it. The, the kind of disaster that becomes um, the independent nation of what had been Saint-Domingue and the Caribbean did not want uh, the, the the kind of remaining French Caribbean colonies did not want to be orphaned um, and, and ostracized in the way that Haiti had been. Um, Haiti was a, a, country, a young country that could not get you know, trade agreements with the United States, for instance, uh, because of fears over um, slave unrest in, in the American South. And so, it really is this kind of—it is an island in more ways than one. And when you go to Martinique and Guadeloupe today, you see a very different world. You know, if you—in fact, when I last flew there. Uh, we stopped over in Haiti, and it's you know desolate and has no investment. and then you land in Fort de France and martinique, and the the airport has recently been renovated with EU funds. you know everyone's using the euro. Uh, there are very real economic disparities, you know, that culminate, say, that two thousand and nine general strike in the French Caribbean. Um, but there's there is a, I guess I would say there are economic considerations that took place among the Caribbean population itself for why departmentalization was better than autonomy.
0: And yet, one of the things that I saw when I visited a few years ago was this ongoing sense of a second-class citizenship, which I think is really one of the legacies of the things that you're talking about in your book.
1: Yes, it very much does. And and very much in the the space of disasters. There have been a number of... um, articles and and books precisely on the topic of investment for disaster mitigation in these colonies. Uh, and that same language comes up of, you know, well, it's, is it worth it? These, these citizens are living in a space that is prone to disaster, being on tectonic plate boundaries, right in the path of hurricanes, um, volcanic eruptions, and what have you. Um, and so you see that same sort of language develop. And then there's, of course, you know, racism, which is uh, where we, we started this conversation. And there's an intense degree of racism against um, individuals of color within France, both from the Maghreb and from uh, the Caribbean. So, yeah, there's th- that, that second-class citizenship is 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 a problem that has not has not yet been rectified, but it is one that has kind of a long lineage from the time when they were colonial citizens. They were technically citizens of the nation, but not completely part of the nation in this kind of colonial relationship. And I think, you know, if if I were to borrow the language of um, Ramon uh, Grossfugel, who at University of California, Berkeley, who describes Puerto Rico as kind of a post-colony, right? This, you know, a neo-colony, but a post-colony because it borrows the colonial legacy um, for its current relationship to the nation. I'd say that that's some sort of post-colonial um relationship exists.
0: So I've taken up a lot of your time today but before we go, I wanted to ask if you're working on any new projects
1: um, I am I'm working so I, I'm working on um, an article that looks more deeply at the uh, incendiarism and arson and the longer legacy of the use of fire in the French Caribbean. Uh, I'm also working on that article of that the kind of lesser-known and uh, underexplored 1929 eruption of Mount Pele, both of which are kind of continuing in this vein. Uh, But I'm also turning to a new project that stems out of um, my interest in digital history that's looking at communal justice as it existed through time and how it has resurged in the digital space through hackers and hacktivism uh, and and the sorts of illicit activities that we – generally tend to think of as technologically determined as as related to the 21st century, um, but I would argue have far deeper roots. And while we've seen over time technologies have changed, the kind of social dynamics have structurally stayed the same. And so, Uh, If I put those under kind of one umbrella, I always describe to people that uh, I guess I'm a historian of when things break or when things go wrong.
0: Well, hopefully this technology won't break and our listeners will get to enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for talking to me.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It was a pleasure.